As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. The C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. Hello and welcome to a brand new season of the C.S. Lewis Podcast with me, Justin Briley, sitting in for Ruth Jackson on this season while Ruth continues her maternity leave. And by the way, if you didn't hear through other channels, Ruth and Will welcomed Eden Grace Evangeline Jackson into the world last year. And she and Will are absolutely delighted, devoted parents, but very sleep deprived as well. Um, and, and here's just a message of congratulations to Ruth. Kudos to Ruth Jackson, says Opa. Uh, reviewing the podcast, Opa writes, Ruth Jackson has done her homework and asked questions which, in and of themselves, prove deeply into the subject. Well done. Thank you very much, Opa. Uh, Opa left that as a rating and review uh, in her iTunes uh, Apple podcast. So if you can leave a rating and review, it helps others to discover us as well. Some fascinating topics for you at the start of this year as we continue to delve into all things C.S. Lewis with Alistair once more in the hot seat. We'll be talking about Lewis's friendships, especially with J.R.R. Tolkien and their influence on each other's writings, uh, transhumanism and technology, what Lewis would say to the way our world revolves around social media and such like and today we're starting with a conversation on c.s lewis miracles and the meaning crisis if you want more from the show do visit the show page at cslewispodcast.com and if you want to support the show into 2022 from anywhere in the world you can find links to do that with today's podcast hope you enjoy Well, welcome back to the podcast today. It's Justin Briley sitting in for Ruth Jackson for this season of the C.S. Lewis podcast. Alistair, welcome back again. Um, it's It's been a little while. Um, how how's life been treating you in, in Oxford where you live? Well, it's strange. I mean, I'm, I'm beginning to see people again, but I still see most of them by um, Zoom calls or something like that. But it is really better to meet people in person, which, of course, is what the incarnation is all about, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Um, I, I was able to go to Oxford recently and it was nice to be back there. But um, yes, like any major city or town, it's it's obviously been impacted in one way or another by COVID. In fact, we might we might get to talk about that a bit later on. Um, but um, we're, we're going to be talking on this week's show in the first of two segments about C.S. Lewis and the meaning crisis. Um, I want to particularly focus today on the way Lewis saw value in drawing on past wisdom to address what could have been described as the meaning crisis of his day um and in many ways arguably the meaning crisis only has only gotten worse in the, in the 21st century um the judeo-christian narrative that framed a lot of people's existence for well thousands of years has sort of faded into the background in large part in the west and and i think a lot of people are wondering how to live where to look for identity and meaning today so, so this is what I wanted to draw out uh, on today's show. 
Um, in fact, some people, such as social psychologist John Viveki, have diagnosed this so-called meaning crisis in the West, people having lost touch, if you like, with the religious stories that framed their existence. Um, do you, do you recognise that phenomenon yourself, Alistair, before we move on to Lewis? Well, I do. And I think it goes back quite a long way. I think the real problem is that a lot of people have a kind of culturally inherited understanding of Christianity, which is becoming fader and it's fading away. It's, it's not really what it used to be. I think the difficulty is that people are, are in effect marginalizing or moving away from something they don't really understand. They have a very simplistic, distorted view of what it is, as I did when I was a teenager. That was a long time ago. Uh, and I think the result is that people are in effect rejecting something they don't understand or, or even more deadly, they're simply saying it, it, it doesn't speak to me but they don't understand what it is. And there are cultural changes involved, but I'm afraid there are also failures on the part of the churches to kind of way keep the story alive and explain what it's all about. Do you think Lewis in the same way saw that happening in his generation, that, that he saw people drifting away from this story and the church failing to tell it in an imaginative way. I think Lewis saw, um, was actually quite angry with the churches for not really explaining what Christianity was all about. And really, he's going back to his boyhood in the Edwardian period. So we're going back to the early 1900s. And I think that we can see there the, the origins of the crisis we're talking about. But I think it's very important to say that actually Lewis, in many ways, is a very important figure to talk to in this whole area, because Lewis is someone who recognized the problem and found his own way of dealing with it. And although I'm going to say to you, I think that we need to work on what Lewis is doing. Nevertheless, he gives us a wonderful platform, a foundation on which we can build. If you had said meaning crisis to Lewis 50, 60 years ago, um, would, what, what do you think he would have supposed you meant by that? Would he have recognised a kind of meaning crisis in his generation? I think he would. I think that we need to bear in mind that if we look, for example, to the 1930s, people very often talk about that as the age of ideology, when big movements like Nazism or Marxism were in effect filling the void left by traditional Christianity. These were big picture ways of looking at our world. People needed that. They really f felt they needed a, a way of understanding where society was going, where they fitted into it, the difference they could make. And both Marxism and National Socialism gave them narratives that helped them make sense of things. And Lewis knew about that. And Lewis, re Lewis really felt we had to do something to show how Christianity does this but i think lewis is really concerned i think about the whole issue of um a trend towards what we might nowadays call relativism and we see this i think particularly in his book the abolition of man which actually was a series of lectures given in the 1940s during the second world war and lewis really was saying look we need to be able to say certain things are evil like what adolf hitler is doing but we haven't got the vocabulary to do that anymore things are either good or not so good but the word evil seems to have lost its meaning and lewis wanted us to recover a moral framework which allowed us to name certain things as evil and say we need to do something about these I mean, it is interesting, isn't it, that Lewis obviously lived through two world wars. Um, so in a sense, he was very acquainted, as so many of his generation would have been, with, if you like, evil and suffering up close and personal. And yet even 
in that environment he could still see that people were willing to as it were relativize and sort of say well no it's really all just down to genetics and you know uh, determinism or, or whatever so so even even with that in the back mirror as it were lewis was still very aware that people were willing to to give an alternative explanation for these kind of phenomena, wasn't he? Well, I think that's right. I think what Lewis is trying to do is to explain why people have, in effect, invented new systems of meaning which don't work, and why we need to recover a proper system of meaning that actually does work. And that's one of the reasons why I think Lewis is so important, because Lewis originally um, was an atheist who felt we simply made up everything, and beginning to realise that that, A, wasn't right intellectually, and B, even if it was right, it gave you no basis for living a meaningful life. And so one of the reasons I think Lewis discovered Christianity is this deep inbuilt realization that materialism is not enough. You need more than that. And it can't just be something we make up. It has to be something real, something beyond us, something that's given to us that we don't invent or make up. So for me, Lewis is a very important figure in helping us to to raise mm. questions about some contemporary trends, but also to help us rediscover not simply what Christianity is but also how it brings meaning to life. And that's, again, where I think the churches fail. They very often present Christianity as a set of doctrines you have to believe, but they don't help you to to see where this set of doctrines takes you in terms of your own personal vision of reality or indeed mm. your own personal meaning. I mean, postmodernism, would that have been a phrase Lewis would have been familiar with? It seems to be, to some extent, what he's describing, especially at the beginning of the abolition of man, when he talks about, particularly in the context of education and literature, the way it was often being framed as simply, you know, a very subjective experience, you know, as to what you took out of, you know, a piece of art or literature or whatever. Were, 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 was that what Lewis was reacting to, what we might call post, the postmodern sort of way of looking at culture? I think what Lewis is reacting at uh, against is, is not so much postmodernism, but the trend that would lead to postmodernism. And that's why I think he, he is important to read, because Lewis is very, very interesting. In his writings, he straddles the modernity, postmodernity boundary. In some of his works, he's very rational. Think, for example, of mere Christianity. In others, there's this deep appeal to the emotions, the imagination, uh, for example, surprised by joy. And actually, both a modernist and a postmodernist will find things in Lewis they can relate to. I think that's very important because very often, you know, if you're, uh, for example, uh, giving a talk, if you're preaching or if you're talking to your friends, I mean, people are all over the place on this. Some are old-fashioned modernists, some postmodernist Lewis can speak to both of these audiences and again that's one of the reasons why I think Lewis has retained his plausibility and uh, for a very long time he's able to bridge that gap between modernity and postmodernity I mean when it comes to people looking for meaning in Lewis's day I mean we, we could look at the way today people look for meaning in all kinds of things whether it be you know relationships power career um, sex whatever it is you know that there's often modern day idols let's say that that people substitute let's say for god what what was lewis seeing people substitute for god in his day i mean was for instance you know to, to what extent was he worried by the rise of um you know communism you know that that was obviously something a lot of people worried about in you know the 40s 50s and 60s post post war um was that something lewis was concerned by what what other forms potentially of um of, of ideology or particular kinds of 
idols that could replace God was was Lewis concerned about? I think one of the things that puzzles me is that actually Lewis engages with secular ideologies like Marxism much less than you would expect. I think that that puzzles me because Mm. Lewis has the intellectual equipment to really say some very important things but didn't say them. And I think we, we can remedy this by saying, well, he, here is what Lewis would have said if he, if he developed his ideas to do this, but he didn't actually do that. I think Lewis, if I can put it like this, Lewis is not constructing his own vision of the Christian faith against something else. He, in effect, is constructing this very powerful, very attractive, very wonderful vision of what Christianity is, and then saying, now, what can we do with it? So I think the really important point to make is that Lewis is not reacting against It's not developing Christianity as a weapon against something he doesn't like. He's saying this is the way things are. And if this is the way things are, then rivals to this are wrong. But more importantly, we need to unfold, to unpack what Christianity is saying so we can see this. So actually, for me, Lewis's approach is is very interesting because he's giving us a tool which is not itself the the result of controversy. It is Lewis saying, this is the way it is. Now, how can we use this way of looking at things to critique lesser visions of reality which distort or delude or, in effect, lead us astray? Because for Lewis, if it's not given from God, it is a human construction, a human invention. You used the word idol earlier. That's a very good word to use. It's a, it's a God that we have invented that isn't God. To some extent, if there was a particular ideology that Lewis does engage with most in in his writings, it it is, if you like, a materialist sort of ideology. Um, And and to what extent was that physicalist, materialist, sort of reductionist view, which in a way we've been very familiar with from the New Atheists and others today, to, to what extent was that, you know, very much at play in Lewis's own day? It was very much a play in Lewis's day because of Marxism. Now, again, as I was saying a moment ago, Lewis doesn't really engage Marxism, but he does engage materialism or naturalism. He doesn't really define these quite as rigorously as um, some of us would like, but that's not a problem. Because what Lewis is saying is that actually um, materialism, in effect, subverts itself because it, it, it really fails to give us a criterion which accounts for the different outcomes of materialist thinking. In effect, materialism is simply a dogma. And for Lewis, I think it's very important to make the point that if we are simply uh, the random outcome of a random process and our thoughts are simply the random mumblings of uh, 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 the material world, then in effect, we have no criterion by which we can judge our thinkings. They could be wrong. There's no external vantage point from which we can uh, judge them. And that, I think, remains a very important point. Um, if, um, If we are going to say that all of our thoughts are simply generated by our material reality or our material circumstances, like our political or economic situation, well then that gives you lots of outcomes. You have to make a decision which of them is right. And that means you have to have a standpoint beyond that by which you can judge them. That's the whole point Lewis makes at the beginning of mere Christianity. So for Lewis, materialism um, doesn't really help us answer the big questions of life. I mean, given, given that that was what he spent a lot of time answering, the materialism issue, to, I mean, 
how big a threat did Lewis see this? I mean, I mean, did did he see this as you know very prevalent in the academy, in you know the institutions he was teaching at? Um, was he seeing it, you know, come up at a popular level? Was that why he was responding to it? Why why was this, if you like, enemy number one, if you like, that that he focused his attention on? Because it was very uh, prominent at Oxford at that time. Um, JBS Holding, other scientists who were Marxists, in effect were saying, we've got a new way of looking at the world that's made everything else obsolete. Let's go with it. And Lewis, I think, is very, very good at responding to this. He said, look, God likes material things. He invented them after all. But the problem is we are not <laughs> limited to them. They, they can be useful. They can be helpful. But we have to realize that materialism does not give us the resources to answer life's big questions. We need, in effect, the author of meaning to tell us what meaning is. And so Lewis there does say, I think, some very helpful things. But the point I would make is actually I see similar trends in, for example, Richard Dawkins, who, who like Holden before him, uh, is in effect saying we are the products of material process. And that means that we are simply um, developing ideas that arise from our material existence. And these these might be random, that, but they are nevertheless what we have to get used to, in which case my response is, well, uh, in that case, Richard Dawkins, your thoughts are as random as anybody else's. There's no external vantage point by which we can judge these. So I think there's a, a very important role for Lewis in these ongoing discussions about why we need more than a purely materialist vision of reality is able to give us. Mm. Now, it, it, it isn't one of his most widely read books, but I think where Lewis perhaps most explicitly states his argument against materialism and naturalism is is in miracles. Um, and to that extent, could you you've already sketched a little bit of a, of a sketch of it, but but could could you give us sort of the, the argument he makes there? Um, in a nutshell, uh, against materialism, because it's in a sense, it's a, it's quite a philosophical argument that ultimately he he makes against this particular philosophy, isn't it? It's quite a philosophical argument, and I, I think um, it's perhaps best um, illustrated by someone climbing a tree and sitting on a branch and then sawing off the branch on which they are sitting. And the point that Lewis is making is something like this: supposing we all agree that our thought processes are generated by our material selves. They have no reference beyond ourselves. They simply arise from our materially embodied reality. Lewis is then saying, well, if that is the case, then in effect, that realization, that materialist belief is itself the outcome of the process we are criticizing. And therefore, in effect, it's, it's circular. And um, we think this because we are material. Therefore, we think we are material because, and you realize you're locked into a circle. And Lewis's point is that we need some way of breaking free of that circle. And that's why Lewis is so keen on the ideas of revelation, the idea of incarnation, because that is God's way of breaking into this otherwise um, circular way of thinking and correcting it. Because again, to emphasize this point, Lewis is saying as if we are trapped in a circular material way of thinking, you cannot break free from it. You cannot say, ah, it's wrong because you're trapped in that way of thinking. It, it is a fascinating argument when you go and read it. Um, and, and for me, there was it was very much a penny dropping moment when as a myself, a, a student at Oxford, I read Miracles for the first time and 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 
found what I thought to be a very powerful critique. Now, of course, he wasn't without his own critics, uh, Lewis himself. And, and I seem to remember, and perhaps you can en- enlighten us a bit, there was an episode himself when he was, um, I think he was, he, he had been involved in the formation of this sort of Socratic debating club at Oxford. And, and this argument against naturalism was actually critiqued by one of his own peers, Elizabeth Anscombe. Um, can you tell us that story? And, and uh, I, I understand Lewis was somewhat chastened, actually, by, by this encounter he had with Anscombe. It's a very interesting um, episode. Uh, Lewis established the Socratic Club at Oxford, um, really with the idea of debating the big questions that arose. Um, and they would have uh, prominent speakers, including, of course, Lewis himself. And they were very, very popular, I have to say. One of them involved a kind of debate between Lewis and the philosopher Elizabeth Anscombe, who, by the way, was an Oxford philosopher and actually is extremely distinguished. And Anscombe raised certain difficulties for Lewis. Now, I need to say I've spoken to people who were there at that debate and that they do have different memories of it, if I put it <laughs> like this. Um, some say, I mean, for example, uh, some other writers would say that Lewis, in effect, was defeated by Anscombe and, in effect, turned to writing stories because he, he realized he could not confront the rational side of things. I, I don't myself think that's right. That's A.N. Wilson's argument in his biography of Lewis. What I think happened is that Lewis realized that actually, A, it was more complex than he had realized, and B, I think this is very important, that actually it would be very, very difficult to express this at a popular level. Mm. In other words, that this whole debate was very, very difficult to express accessibly. And therefore, I personally think it made Lewis wonder, were there other forms of writing or reflection which might help him explore these questions more accessibly? And that's why I think he did indeed turn to the telling of stories, because he realized he could tell stories which would actually help people imagine what the problem with materialism was. And we see that particularly in my view in The Silver Chair, which is one of the later volumes Mm. in the Chronicles Mm. of Narnia. So my own view is that Lewis's tendency to move towards writing stories was well underway by this point, but it gave it a new energy because he realized he could begin to engage these important questions in a more accessible way. Well, well, in that case, we have a lot to thank Elizabeth Anscombe for if if she was in some way instrumental (laughs) in in pushing him in that direction which is obviously the direction he subsequently became the most the most known for i mean i mean and just to to wrap that story up i mean anscombe herself was was not an atheist by any means was she in in critiquing uh lewis no no anscombe actually was was on lewis's side i mean she she also thought materialism didn't work she simply felt that lewis had not actually explored with sufficient rigor um, so I, I, there's no question of Lewis's position being destroyed. In fact, he, he rewrote um, the relevant chapter of the first edition of his Miracles to kind of take Elizabeth Anscombe's points into account. I think the, the real issue was Lewis began to realise this philosophical argumentation is, is quite dense and quite impenetrable. How on earth do I kind of way make this accessible to my to a wider readership. I think that's one of the things Elizabeth Anscombe um, did uh, cause Lewis to reflect about, whether his present apologetic approach actually could cope with the, the degree of sophistication that was mm. uh, linked with Anscombe's approach to the question. I, I think, and I think Anscombe in a way puts her finger on it there in that case, because there are 
a small segment of people who may be powerfully persuaded by an argument like Lewis's in Miracles against naturalism, and it may well cause them to reconsider their their atheism, might even set them on the course to Christianity, who knows. But the reality is, you know, it, it really is too much of a sort of intellectual philosophical routine for most people to, to kind of grasping the issues at stake. So to, to that degree, where do you feel Lewis at a popular level helped people to engage with this idea of of where we get our meaning from you know where where could we look to lewis if we want a more popular level treatment of of the kinds of you know big picture issues he was raising in in that book miracles well i think you you could look at um mere christianity which does actually begin to unfold some of these things but i think the really important point to make here is actually you are absolutely right to make the point that actually lewis's intellectual arguments very often are not as sophisticated as professional philosophers would like but here's what i have discovered from countless conversations with people that what lewis does is to show that an argument which initially seemed immensely plausible the materialist argument um, and therefore was the only option for a ser serious thinking person actually is circular it, it, it doesn't work and that in itself is enormously important because if you suddenly realize something you had thought was absolutely watertight, then suddenly you realize there has to be a better way of doing this. And that to me is very, very important because what Lewis does here is to say there is a better way. It makes you receptive to alternatives. And for me, that's very important. Coming to Lewis, the way he drew on the ancients, um, ancient literature, ancient sources of wisdom, philosophy, and so on. To, to what extent did he believe that the, his culture had kind of lost touch with some of that ancient wisdom? Uh, and, and what sort of ways did he try to remind them of, of some of that? I think one of the things that Lewis really began to realise in the 1930s was that there was this very, very strong um, tendency to say the past is dead. The past is simply a liability. We need radical new solutions. And that way of thinking really began to emerge after the First World War. People felt that, in effect, the First World War was the product of the ways of thinking of earlier generations. We need to break free from early ways of thinking and start all over again. A radical rethinking of everything. So rebuilding from ground zero. And Lewis is saying, look, let's stop right there. And this is not right. Uh, there is wisdom in the past. There's also a lot of stupidity. We need to filter out what is wise and learn from it. And that, I have to say, was a minority position. Uh, but it was something that's absolutely characteristic of Lewis, who in effect said we have this problem of chronological snobbery, by which he meant we assume that only recent stuff can be taken seriously, like, for example, Marxism, like, for example, um, Nazism. Just to give you two examples, and you can add many, many more to that. And so Lewis, in effect, saw himself as being someone who would make the case for a critical retrieval of the past. No, it's not saying we, we, we accept everything from the past, but rather we filter out what is really good and hold on to that. Because, in effect, we need that historical rootedness in this time when things seem to be going very seriously wrong. And I think that's one of Lewis's more interesting contributions, both to thinking about political and social issues, but also, above all, to theological and religious issues. 
Well, we're going to take a break there and continue this conversation on C.S. Lewis and the Meaning Crisis next week with Alistair as we explore the modern mental health crisis in light of this conversation. Thanks so much for listening this week. And for more from the show, do visit our show page, cslewispodcast.com. And if you want to support the show in 2022 from anywhere in the world, you can find links to do that with today's podcast. For now, thanks for being with us and see you next time. <laughs>